Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we need a review of how Ontario handled the convoy crisis, but will we ever get one? Loblaw's decision to freeze prices on all no-name items has received mixed reviews. Was it just a PR strategy, or are they actually trying to help Canadians? And Christia Freeland says she has a plan to promote democracy, but it may not be cheap. Heather Schofield, Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star, will join us to talk about that. All coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The uh, investigation, of course, uh, into what happened in Ottawa uh, this past February continues. And uh, the, the gist of it, of course, is uh, what you know the government did or should have done in situations like this uh, and the Emergencies Act and the imposition thereof. Well, what we heard yesterday was the uh, city of Ottawa officials took the stand at the public inquiry into the federal government's decision uh, they're going to learn that uh, Ottawa businesses warned officials that some protesters were intending to stay a lot longer than they said they were going to and a lot longer than Ottawa officials thought they were going to. Global's Kyle Benning has some details for us. Ottawa Police Service and City Hall had documents that the so-called Freedom Convoy protesters were intending to stay longer than a weekend. During Monday's Public Order Emergency Commission, an email was brought up from the Regional Hotel Association, which said protest organizers were looking to book hotel stays for longer than a month. Ottawa City Manager Steve Kanalakis says they had to be cautious with all of the information coming in. It wasn't unusual to have a, a, um, a variance in the... Uh, views of people who thought it was going to be bigger, longer, you know, smaller. There were all kinds of opinions on what that would be. The only information we could rely on was the Ottawa police. Ottawa Mayor Jim Watson is expected to testify on Tuesday. Kyle Benning, Global News. Uh, well, uh, if you want to take that as a solid explanation, uh, well, <laughs> I got a bridge I may want to sell you. Uh, interesting piece uh, that's uh, on the TVO uh, website, tvo.org, of course, uh, from uh, Matt Gurney. Matt, of course, is a, is a writer for TVO and for the National Post. Uh, and in the he basically is calling not just for this investigation to continue, but we need a review of how Ontario handled the convoy crisis. And we're probably not going to get one. Matt Gurney joins us uh, to talk about that. Uh, great to have you back on the show, Matt. How are you doing these days? I'm okay, Bill. How are you doing? Uh, good, good. I'm a little perturbed by some of the stuff I'm hearing from this review, especially <laughs> the Ottawa City Manager yesterday. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know if you just heard the clip we just played from Kyle Benning, uh, where the city manager basically said, well, we got all kinds of stories and information, so we just relied on Ottawa police. So Ottawa police already said they didn't know anything. So, I mean, where does that leave these guys? Um, honestly, man, I'm with you. Like, th there's no way to put this. A little bit perturbed is sort of my meta mood for the last three years, but particularly yeah. when we talk about this um i i've written while well, you talked about my tvo column yesterday and i've written probably a half dozen since the convoy wrapped up saying that of all the many things we need to examine uh including obviously the ontario government's response and we can talk about that in a minute yep. i've always said the original kind of the original sin the original failure was in Ottawa, particularly on the police here, because it looks to me and the testimony we were hearing yesterday uh, has seemed to have confirmed this, that it seems like everybody in the free world knew what was going to happen, except like the half dozen people in Ottawa who actually had positions of authority and responsibility and leadership here. Me sitting on my butt in my basement in Toronto, where my home office is, and just watching Twitter and monitoring some of the other social media accounts was somehow better informed than the Ottawa Police Service. And I wrote a column 
a few days before the convoy arrived in Ottawa, or just as the leading edge of it was starting to arrive in Ottawa. And I went back and I checked this yesterday, and I had a better understanding of what was about to unfold than apparently the people making the decisions in Ottawa did. And I can't explain that. I can't tell you what went wrong. I mean, the information was all out there. It was out there in plain view. So I don't know if this was a, an issue of intelligence gathering that failed, intelligence analysis that failed, or if this is just one of those examples, and they crop up from time to time in history, that all the right people had all the right information and they failed somehow to make the right decisions. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting a little reticent to even use the word intelligence when I'm talking about the information gathering because I don't know if they applied a whole lot of intelligence. But, and, but you know, to, to the city manager's point, and, and of course, as he mentioned, he was relying on then-chief slowly for their details information. Uh, these guys were told days before these guys even showed up in Ottawa, this is the hotel association. This is not speculation. They're saying these guys are booking rooms for 30 to 90 days. They're not just going to be here for the weekend. I mean, what more information can you need? These are the guys that actually have booked the rooms for them. Uh, and, and they just basically said, oh, that's not going to happen, is it? Come on. Uh, it, the, the, it's incredulous, the attitude that these guys took. And just, you know, maybe if we just look the other way, these guys will just go away and everything's going to be fine by Monday morning. That seems to have been the conclusion they reached in complete contravention of every bit of available. Well, we won't say intelligence. We'll say information. Okay. It's it's inexplicable. And, you know, I, I don't like that the fact that my mind goes to dark places. But at a certain point, you have to start wondering, in, in the face of such manifest incompetence, were there people who, you know, the old saying, right? There are none so blind as those who will not see. Like, I, I honestly don't know. I don't, I don't mean to imply that there were sympathizers at the highest level, because I think that would be a stretch. But maybe there were people whose egos were overriding their judgment and, and people telling them what was going to happen. I mean, Bill, you remember this. The convoy guys were saying, we're going to Ottawa and we're going to stay until we get what we want. Like, they, they weren't. Mm -hmm. They weren't vague about this, right? Like they weren't couching their their words in in, in mysterious euphemism. They told us exactly what they were going to do. They showed up and did exactly what they said they were going to do. And the city of Ottawa, starting with the the Ottawa Police Service, went, "My God, we're shocked." Yeah, uh, there were two trains of thought here. Uh, one, as you say, was uh, they stopped in the Hamilton area. I mean, we covered that story just a couple of days before they made it up to Ottawa, of course. Uh, and, and the message there, the mantra was, we're not leaving until all mandates are, are gone from the federal, even though it wasn't the federal government that put most of those mandates in place. So they didn't seem to get that, but be that as it might. But the other one, even more dangerous, though, Matt, is, I think we, you and I talked about this a little while ago, uh, where there was another uh, element of, of, of this protest, too, that basically said, we're not leaving until Justin Trudeau has booted out of Parliament Hill. The governor general takes and fires him, and we're going to help form a new government. That's 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 beyond uh, pettiness. I mean, you're, you're talking about insurrection there, and you're talking about uh, uh, basically overthrowing a duly elected government. That's pretty serious stuff. Uh, yet the Ottawa police didn't seem to think so. Yep. And like I said, there's no real way to explain any of this uh, because it is inexplicable. I guess we will find out eventually. Well, you know what? I'm going to actually, I'm going to pull that back. I'm not even as optimistic as I was about to say there. We will hear an attempt at explanations from uh, Peter Slowly. He's the one, I confess, that I'm the most interested in hearing from. Of all the 65 witnesses so far, he's the one, I think, is going to be the most interesting, depending on what he actually has to say. And if he gives carefully scripted little sound bites through his lawyer, it will probably just be very frustrating. 
but for two reasons, former Ottawa Chief of Police Peter Slowly is my uh, most intriguing upcoming witness. First of all, he will have insight into exactly uh, what you and I are talking about right now, that initial failure that happened in the first 12 to 24 hours. Like, I don't even think the convoy guys expected to be as successful as they were. And I think kind of once they were there, everything kind of got locked in in a weird way. So slowly, if he deigns to, can tell us a little bit about that. And then I'm also interested in hearing about um, there was a pretty you'll remember this. There was a big pivot in his comments. Uh, His tone changed very quickly. I interpreted that at the time and my sources confirmed that slowly uh, he he went through the five stages of grief faster than anyone else did. And he kind of realized, oh, we're in deep trouble. Like we've screwed up. We've dropped the ball. We're in big trouble here. And he was quicker to understand that than anyone else was. And I'd be fascinated, uh, again, to hear what he has to say about kind of what led him to that decision. But I'll be honest with you, man, I'm not holding my breath. I think there's a very good chance that we're going to have 65 witnesses get up there and deliver carefully scripted talking points. Oh, and they've had lots of time to do the preparation for that, too. Let me, if I could, segue over to uh, the thrust of your your piece, though. (laughs) Where was Doug Ford through this whole thing? Uh, this happened, Ottawa, last time I checked, is in Ontario. Uh, Windsor, uh, last time I checked, was in Ontario. Uh, we had a shutdown at that border point, which was costing millions of dollars. And and basically, we were becoming the laughingstock of, of, of you know the free world and of the G8 and everything else because we couldn't protect our own border from a bunch of truckers. Uh, this was big stuff, and, and we found out after the fact, of course, uh, the premier was up at his place in Muskoka, ski or uh, snowmobiling, as opposed to being down here. You know, he's, he's he offered all kinds of support after the fact, but during the crisis, MIA. Th- that's the only way to put it, MIA, or even if we want to use an, another military term, a wall, uh, absent mm-hmm. without leave. Look, I, I, Bill, you asked me where he was. I don't know. I mean, like you said, he was up at the cottage, and God knows I love a good cottage trip myself. So, like, I, I, I have no moral high ground there. But sometimes. The job's got to come first, Mr. Premier, and for two weeks in Ottawa, the Premier, and we were hearing about this in testimony yesterday, the Premier and some of his cabinet ministers basically took an explicitly hands-off attitude. Not a political situation. This is a law enforcement situation. You guys figure it out. And I think we all we all know, um, even without having heard any testimony yet, we all know exactly what happened because we've known Doug Ford a while now. When the Windsor border got closed, that began impacting the auto sector. And I have every confidence in the world that the auto guys called up the premier and screamed at him down a cell phone until he decided to, to get off the snowmobile and get serious about this. I don't know if this was a miscalculation by the Ford government that they thought, that's ah, fine. The cops will handle it. We don't need to get our hands dirty. You know, some people even suggested, and this is cynical, but maybe it's true, that maybe Doug looked at this and said, yeah, you know what? This is a Justin problem. We're going to let him worry about this one. It's his capital city. He can figure it out. But as a lot of Ottawa residents have always said, they've never really felt like Queen's Park under this premier cares about them. It's not a part of the, the province where Doug Ford wins a lot of seats. It's not a part of the province where they have much expectation of winning any more seats. Ottawa's kind of its own creature in, in the province, and it looks like this premier in particular it was able and willing to ignore them right up until the moment the Windsor border blockade began hurting big business. All of a sudden, he was in a real hurry. What I find intriguing about this, and, and that was part of the testimony yesterday, is that uh, the city manager in Ottawa uh, said they did contact Queen's Park for help, for assistance. Now, I don't know how, exactly how that was worded, but uh, he also added that Sylvia Jones, who was the attorney general at that time, basically said no. 
And and I can get that if maybe they didn't want to get into the political quicksand about this sort of thing. But the attorney general was in charge of law and order. And there was no law and certainly no order uh, in Ottawa at that time. And they just basically said, too bad, so sad, guys. You're on your own. That is why, as I said in the column, we need, but we won't get, some kind of review of the Ontario government response. We need witnesses. We need subpoenas or orders to appear in the Canadian context. I need, I need cabinet ministers dragged in chains before, before a <laughs> panel um, with the authority to question them under oath. And we're not going to get any of that. And I, I, I don't say this uh, in any way uh, boastfully, but I wrote a column um, right after this all wrapped up and I made a prediction. And I'm sorry to say that this prediction has borne out 100%. I didn't think Doug was going to face any political consequences for this. I just didn't think any of this was going to stick to him. I said then, and I still think now that the manifest dysfunction we saw at the city of Ottawa combined with the fact that a lot of people wrongly sort of just assume, well, Ottawa's the national capital, so that's a federal issue, and the borders are a federal issue, so this is Trudeau's fault. Doug Ford and his government completely abdicated their duty in the first two weeks, at least, of this crisis. They were AWOL. They were not picking up the phone. This was obviously uh, reiterated in the testimony yesterday. This was a colossal abandonment of basic core functions of any government, the preservation of law and order and the right of the citizens to freely travel and engage in commerce. Like this is literally why we have governments. Like when we strip away everything we've added to governments over the centuries, what the Doug Ford government abandoned its responsibilities for is literally the purpose of why we came together in the first place to make governments, to provide for the common security and the common good and the ability to conduct free commerce. They just completely fell down on the job here. But then they went a couple of months later and they won a massive majority. There is no organization or body or agency that can force an investigation on them. There is nothing in the legislation, like in the Emergencies Act, that compels an automatic review of this. Doug Ford and his newly reelected government just don't have any incentive to aggressively investigate their own misconduct, and we're not going to get it. And, and listen, I, this is not a witch hunt. I don't want to drag Doug Ford, you know, through the streets and, you know, tarred and feathered, or, and, or, nor Justin Trudeau for that matter either. Uh, you know, we can't undo what happened in the past, but here's my concern. I don't want this to happen again with, with some other organization. If we don't explore what went wrong, how are we going to stop it from happening again? From who knows what kind of group? They already know, hey, we can shut down the borders. Hey, we can occupy downtown Ottawa. We can do that, and they won't do much about it. And and that's not a very comforting thought. Well, first of all, Bill, if you don't want to parade these guys through the streets, you might be a more forgiving gentleman than I am. Um, <laughs> no, but no, I'm with you. Um, and I'm, I'm very forward looking at all of this. And when I listen to the better angel on my shoulder instead of that pesky little devil, I probably agree with you here. The important thing rather than apportioning and, uh, and assigning blame and rather than uh, extracting a pound of flesh. The important thing is to learn lessons and apply them in the future. And also to be seen doing that, to like send a strong signal to anyone who might have ideas that, hey, we've learned from this. And if you try this again, this is what's going to happen to you. So there's a lot of reasons to want there to be a really deep and thoughtful, proactive effort to find out what went wrong. Just like after any emergency or crisis, you want to have an after action review here. You're 100% right. This is not only uh, would enable us to hopefully do better in the future. I also think it would make the future less likely if we made a big deal and we told the world, this is what we learned and this is what we would do different last time. But we're not going to do that. 
you know, we're, we're probably going to hear the premier at some point soon, step up and talk about like new Timmy's breakfast sandwiches or something. And all of the attention of the public right now is sort of on inflation or um, uh, COVID with, with, with case rates going up, or it's on the looming possible education strike. It's on cost of living issues. No one is paying attention to this. You and I are, are doing our thing here. Within the bounds of our professionalism, we're, 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 sh- we're screaming from the rooftops. We're telling people t- to listen here. I'm writing columns. We're talking about it on your show, reaching your listeners here. This is something people should care about. I, I just don't know if they do. Well, uh, we'll find out what goes on today. <laughs> as I say, I'm not as hopeful as, as some people might be. Matt, as always, yeah. thanks for this. Thanks for writing the piece, first of all. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Any, anytime, man. Thanks for reaching out, and let's keep banging on this because it's important. You betcha. Matt Gurney, of course, from TVO.org. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Surprise announcement by Loblaw yesterday, essentially saying they're going to freeze uh, the price of uh, no-name products uh, for the next couple of months to try to help us all out. Uh, met with some skepticism by an awful lot of people when the announcement was first made. This is all kind of a, an offshoot of the debate that's been going on in, in the House Commons for the last couple of days, uh, especially uh, from NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, who's basically accusing a lot of the grocery companies of price gouging during these uh, uh, rather uncomfortable economic times, shall we say. Uh, here's what uh, Mr. Singh had to say about the move yesterday. Now, while that's something that is a positive step, uh, we're concerned that they're freezing the higher prices, the inflated prices, and that they could have acted a lot sooner. We've seen in G7 nations around the world that other sectors have moved more quickly to freeze or to bring down prices. So we're concerned about that. But this is a result of the pressure that we've put to say that it's proven our point that grocery stores are actually actively able to set prices and governments should play a role in stopping greed from driving up the cost of food. Uh, which is a theme that, uh, that Mr. Singh has, uh, has really latched onto in the last little while. So is this a, 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 an honest attempt to try to help consumers, or is it, as some people are suggesting, uh, just a PR move? And they're doing it because, well, they can. I want to bring uh, Moshe Lander into the conversation. Moshe, of course, is a senior economics lecturer at Concordia University. Always a pleasure, Moshe. Thanks so much for the time today. My pleasure, and I certainly enjoyed the uh, Duran Duran bumper music. That's uh, that is there very nice. nothing nothing like Duran Duran to start off a morning. I mean, just there we go, uh, loving the stuff and the hair too. Well, I don't. Do, I guess we don't do the hair anymore, do we? But anyway, uh, let's let's talk a little bit about what's going on here. And uh, some people are surprised by this announcement here. Uh, and Mr. Singh's point is well taken. An awful lot of people say, "Well, wait, yeah, you waited until the prices went up about thirty percent, and th- then you froze them." <laughs> Who's who wins out of that? I mean, is it is this really going to help consumers? Consumers in the long term? No, but I, I actually took exception with what Mr. Singh was saying because it's not it's not businesses' responsibilities to cap their prices, uh, and so for him to take credit for this idea, for him to accuse businesses of uh, some sort of improper behavior with prices was kind of offensive. You know, businesses are profit maximizers, and they set the price that the market can bear, uh, and if they're freezing the price. While I am very cynical about what the motivation was, it's not something that they're obligated to do. And they can do this. I mean, as, as we've looked at this, Loblaw, one of the biggest change, of course, and, and they control, well, not just the, the yellow brands, the no-name brands, but also President's Choice as well, uh, which is another bargain brand, I suppose, too. Uh, what With that kind of power and with that placement in the industry, uh, how is this going to impact them? I mean, do they control the supply chain more than maybe some of the other chains do? 
Well, they certainly have leverage to negotiate with their suppliers, and that does give them some leverage, right? Remember, the Loblaws brand does really go coast to coast, whether it's as Canadian Superstore out in the West or um, IGA and Provigo in Quebec and uh, Atlantic Superstore out east. So, I, you know, they, they do have leverage here to say that, um, you know, we, we want to play tough. And, and that's why they're able to do it with the no-name labels and with President's Choices, because that's where they have the most leverage. But uh, the the label brand, you know, how, how much uh, strength are they going to have negotiating with, say, um, you know, manufacturers of Doritos and Ruffles? We, we actually saw earlier this year that shelves went empty at Shoppers Drug Marts uh, with those products because they were trying to negotiate tough uh, and, you know, potato chips manufacturers apparently have a little more leverage to say, if you don't uh, agree to these prices, we're not giving you the product. Well, and and that's one of the things that I find kind of puzzling about this, because they're talking about uh, these changes, if they do have the ability to be able to manipulate within uh, the existing structure here right now. But, uh, you know, they don't manufacture these things. I mean, the, the, their companies might be able to do some of this stuff, but, you know, the, the, they don't grow the corn, they don't grow the uh, the, the the wheat for the cereals, etc., uh, and those prices have gone up, and the and the cost of production of those things have gone up. Uh, with that in mind, is it almost an inevitability here that well, we're going to get nailed as consumers because if that goes up, of course they're going to pass it on to us. Yeah, and they're going to pass as much on as is possible, right? So I, I think one of the myths out there is that you know they pass on dollar for dollar every increase that they experience, but that's not necessarily true. If they're operating in a semi-competitive marketplace, if there's a lot of other grocers competing in that same space uh if they try and pass on too much of it other grocers can realize that they can steal business by not passing it along so you know it, it's not necessarily going to be dollar for dollar uh but yeah the the reality is that you know i i think the way that mr singh was presenting this is almost implying that it's some sort of conspiracy uh, that prices are going up rather than this is really a global phenomenon that is beyond the control of any one particular retailer, even say a retailer as large as uh, as Jeff Bezos' Amazon, right? Like it, it really is a global phenomenon that's happening right now. And um, the, the ability to cap prices uh, is a, a nice idea, but the actual consequences of that are, are much more damaging uh, in the long run than any short-run benefit that, that might come from it. There's a reality here, and I wanted to get your read on this, because it's been a while. <laughs> I mean, way back in my college days, and I'm talking way back in my college days, I, I spent a lot of time working grocery stores, stocking shelves, paid for tuition and everything else. Uh, but we used to, I think it was Monday nights, uh, and basically on the night shift, we changed prices. Uh, you know, here's the direction. And you're right, uh, you know, the, the frozen corn might go down three or four cents, something else would go up. But Two rows over, something else went up a penny or two. So it was almost a, a net zero. Is, is that going on here too? I mean, they can freeze these prices if they want, but that doesn't necessarily mean there won't be some price fluctuations in other areas. It, it might be, but I don't. I, I think each one of those individual products is probably driven by its own supply and demand. I, I think what's driving the decision here is, let's say that I decide that I'm going to cap prices of President's Choice. So in that case, I could have increased prices another 2% more this year but I'm going to pass up on it. If as a response, it's going to increase the quantity of those products that I sell by say 3%, well, I lose out on 2% in price, but I increase the quantity that I sell by 3%. I'm actually up 1% on the deal here. And so it, it could actually be a way that they could boost their revenue, regardless of what they're doing two aisles over or with the name brand stuff. And I think that's what's really driving the calculation here is the reason why they implemented it so late and for such a short period of time, right? It's only going to last for a couple of months 
is that they're figuring that what they miss out on on further price increases will be more than made up for by quantity increases and that that's good business that's profit maximizing well and maybe to a lesser degree we're not going to see hoarding i wouldn't think but we are going to see people stocking up uh, you know, if there's going to be a price freeze on this, I mean, uh, I'm anticipating seeing an awful lot of people, you know, with the with you know a, maybe ten or twelve cans of, of frozen vegetables as opposed to you know what they might have felt one or two in the past, uh, just to take advantage of this. And and you're right, that's a that's a plus for the the store, isn't it? Yeah, and you know, we we see this type of price fixing. Uh, not in the negative sense, I mean, like that they're going to stop any sort of price increase. Uh, we, we see this at all kinds of other stores, right? How, how many times have we gone into a Walmart, for example, and seen that their rollback, the price price is the same price that it's been for months on end. And it always seems to be on sale from some sort of mythical number that none of us have ever seen, right? The, the fact is that they are capping the price at a certain amount, uh, understanding that when they present it to people as it's a sale price, uh, that seems to drive sales in a way that if they just said, look, this is the regular price and it's not on sale, uh, it wouldn't have the same effect necessarily. Well, and that's marketing 101, isn't it? I think you've told us that in the past. If you, you want to make 10 bucks selling something, you sell it for nine ninety nine, and people think they're getting a bargain. You know, I got it for under 10 bucks. Uh, there's a psychological thing at play here, too. If it says it's a sale price, then it's a sale price, and and you know, and we got a bargain out of this. And that's exactly it. And so by saying that they're planning on capping the prices for the rest of the year, uh, you know, who, who knows what they were planning on doing for the rest of the year? I mean, maybe they weren't planning on increasing it anyway. So if they make the announcement that uh, we're capping prices, well, they're, they're heroes now, um, where maybe that was their intention all along. And even if they were planning on increasing the prices, how much were they planning on doing? You know, I, I mean, from uh, just a behind the scenes look, I want to know. So what was the intention? You were planning on increasing it another 2% more and you're passing up on that? Or you were planning on increasing it another 20% more and you're passing up on it? What 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 is really the, the missing part of the story here? Um, they're, they're never going to tell, but that would be the thing that I'd want to know. How much pressure is this going to put on the other guys? I mean, you've heard the story this morning that already Metro has said, oh, yeah, well, we all do that this time of year. So this is really no big deal. I, I don't recall that they all do that this year, but... Uh, that that seems to be their attitude here, but they've got to be feeling some pressure to say we have to comply now. We have to follow their their lead here. They're under immense pressure, and I, I think that we're going to see them follow suit. And I think that we could see that start to appear in other retailers outside of the the grocery stores. But you know, where you were saying that uh, you haven't seen it in the past, uh, that's exactly it. Is that in the past, um, say go back twelve months and then thirty years uh, into the past, prices were stable. We would see 2% inflation a year. So the fact is that if you needed to change your prices, it was only once or twice a year anyway, and then it would get locked in for six months and save for any sort of uh, extreme weather condition or supply chain disruption, which wasn't nearly as common, um, then prices generally would remain stable. So it, it was almost like uh, they didn't need to announce it because it, it was the price increase itself that was the shock rather than the keeping the price the same. What about some of these uh, external factors, though, that you've talked about? Uh, price of gasoline, price of fuel uh, is is still up, uh, and that's got to have an impact on production. Uh, we know there aren't enough truckers uh, to get things from point A to point B, so there's going to be some supply chain disruptions as well, too. Uh, do they swallow that, eat that 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 increase, or do they try to pass it on? Or do, this, are, are they being forced right now to just say, okay, we're just going to have to take a hit here? I, I can't see these guys are going to try to lose money by doing this. No, and and I don't think that they're doing it to to lose money. I I think what's happening is that they are under immense pressure from various political leaders, Mr. Singh being one of them, 
that seems to be accusing them of being complicit in this high inflation that we're experiencing. So to, to try and counter that PR, you can stand in front of a microphone all you want and say, we're not complicit. We are merely just passing along what's being passed on to us um, and nothing more. But people aren't going to believe it. So I, I think that, you know, a point has come where they, they've had to speak out and just say, all right, we're going to cap prices, um, you know, not because necessarily it's it's what they would have normally done, but because it's maybe to hemorrhage any sort of lost sales that would come from it or to try and recover sales that they're losing because people are losing confidence. And I, I think that's one of the things that we're seeing across the board is that this high inflation, because it's once in a 40 year experience, it's very unfamiliar to a lot of Canadians. And so um, they're, they're viewing a loss of confidence in various uh, institutions and infrastructure. Uh, and so there's now a PR battle to try and say, this is not something that we're doing through conspiracy. It's something that is just happening and all of us have to kind of go along with it. Absolutely. Uh, Moshe, as always, thank you so much for this. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Anytime. Take care. Moshe Landa, who is the uh, senior economics lecturer at uh, Concordia University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's uh, Michael Buble saying there's a new day coming. Things are different now uh, because of the pandemic economically. Uh, and we've seen uh, some of the negative impacts of that, of course, uh, with inflation and some of the other elements that are going on. Uh, and uh, there are some people that are understandably saying, well, look, we can't just go back to the status quo. There's got to be a better way for us to move forward economically. And uh, Christy Freeland seems to be uh, leading the pack with a, a rather innovative idea that she and a number of people from uh, some like-minded countries are looking at right now. I, I, plan certainly to promote democracy, but at the same time, uh, with a strong economic foundation for it, uh, which is a rather interesting take on this. Uh, Heather Schofield writes about it uh, in the Toronto Star. Heather, of course, is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star. Uh, Heather, uh, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you back with us today. My pleasure. As, as you're both in, in the piece, Ms. Freeland has been talking about this and advocating for this sort of thing for quite some time. Uh, is it starting to resonate with the Prime Minister and some other people now? Yeah, although I haven't uh, heard uh, Prime Minister Trudeau mention the word friendshoring per se, or or um, Francois Philippe Champagne, who's the other key player in all of this, I haven't heard him talk about that using those particular words. This seems to be a particular approach by Krista Freeland. She's been talking to Janet Yellen, um, who is her counterpart in the United States. They've been talking about this for some time, um, and uh, some of the European leaders as well. Um, you know, they have various ways of, of expressing it. Um, and, 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 and so I wouldn't say, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, Freeland is offside or anything with the prime minister and Champagne and talking about this. It's just, she's using different words than they do at this point. And, and the foundation here is that, as I think as you articulated in the piece, it, it's, it's sort of like NATO, but it's, it's based on the economy, not necessarily on, on defense or, or some of the other motivations uh, that, that NATO members and others in G7, I guess. Uh, it's kind of, a, I guess, a, a hybrid of G7 and NATO, isn't it? Yeah, well, she so she she had that comparison in her speech. That, so she was in in Washington last week. Um, there were a whole bunch of uh, people just like her in Washington from around the world for G seven, G twenty meetings, IMF meetings, World Bank meetings, and and she gave a big speech and she uh, rolled out this vision that she has of friendshoring, um, and she compared it to kind of a NATO approach to economics and trade and investment. So the concept is like NATO, you just deal with your friends, you protect your friends, you have their back, and um, you don't deal with your enemies. If they do something to one of you, then you you do something, they, they're doing something to all of you. So 
Um, that is a little bit of, uh, it's a little bit more aggressive than, than the concept that Freeland has, has talked about in the past. So she's talked about French shoring where, you know, you do trade and investment with everybody, but less so in sensitive areas with your, with people that you really don't like, like China and Russia, um, because they aren't, they don't share your values. So this is a whole values based economy that she's talking about rather than profit or efficiency. Um, so if, if they have a, um, a, a dictator or an autocratic leader, um, you, you've got to have your backup and not necessarily be willing to trade with them. Um, it's a bit of a hard thing to say, though, in the case of of China, because we do so much. I mean, they, they provide so many inputs um, to to what we actually make and do and and and, and how our economy operates. So it's, it's hard to go out there and say, OK, no trade with China. But what her approach is there is saying, OK, we've got to figure out how to do things on our own so we're not dependent on them and then taking it a step further if 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 China is aggressive or Russia is aggressive or so you know somebody is aggressive and and and, and goes after uh you know one of the countries involved in this French shoring alliance well then everybody else uh, then you've got, you've got to act together as a group against them it's, uh, again to paraphrase I guess an economic attack on one is an economic attack on all exactly <laughs> yeah. Does. Uh, but and and your point's well taken because what even recent history I guess has shown us uh, Heather is that uh, the those the various countries uh, the the Russia the China uh, they will use that strong economic bond against us uh, well to, like they're doing to Germany right now and to France yeah. uh, when it comes to you know their reliance on on Russia for energy and simply say well no you guys are doing something we don't like you're supplying arms to to Ukraine we're cutting you off. Uh, and well, friends don't do that to friends, but Russia will do that to us and China will do that to us. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the thing with French rank goes both ways. I mean, I, so, you know, you can say, OK, it all sounds very lovely to just do trade with your friends. Uh, but, you know, if you don't do trade with the people that you don't like, they are going to also ally, like get together against you. Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, Russia right now, I mean, obviously Germany is having. Uh, a lot of second thoughts about how dependent they were on on Russian oil and gas. Um, and they went to, I would say that they even knew at the time when they got so heavily dependent on, on Russian oil and gas that they knew that there was a risk out there. And now um, that's really um, biting them because, because now, you know, that they would rather not buy Russian oil and gas and in Russia is busy, um, you know, playing games with that and, 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 and making it very difficult for, for, to, for, for Germany to get that oil and gas. Um, and so, you know, the, the repercussions are huge, right? Like it looks like as parts of Europe are running low on, on, um, on stores of oil and gas, they're having to build them all up. We've got prices all over the place uh, around the world on commodities. Um, the inflation problem that we're dealing with right here in Canada is largely because of that, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine um, and, and, and cutting off supplies. So it's, it's pretty complicated and it's, uh, you know, it's a pretty harsh reality right now uh, because we are so interconnected. So I guess what Freeland's saying here is, okay, let's be less interconnected so that we don't have so much uh, geopolitical risk. So where do the other players fall into this? And, and as it is with, I guess, many other trade deals or any other kind of uh, uh, collaborations between countries, you, you've got the alpha countries, you've got the United States, you've got Russia, Canada, I think, wants to be a bigger player in that and maybe has an opportunity with this. But there's going to be a number of smaller nations that are going to want to get in on this. Is there an advantage to them to, to, to come under this umbrella as well? 
Yeah, well, it's that's that's a difficult uh, question because you know there are whole like Freeland, uh, you know, describe them as kind of these in between countries that you know they may not share our values, they may not be democratic, um, and and what do you do? Like cut out a whole bunch of uh, developing countries because you don't like their politics and and just trade amongst themselves, like. That might be too harsh. It might also be just nonsensical in terms of how the global economy works um, to cut out everybody um, that whose politics you don't like. Um, and so um, she she talked about you know looking having an open door, um, being open to to trading with everybody, but you know encouraging uh, the the countries that are like minded and embracing liberal democracy that they kind of show the you know give an example to other countries to say, okay, look, we're, we're, we have liberal democracy. We're also prosperous. Sure. Trade with us. Maybe also look at how we, how we, uh, how our governance works as well. But we, you know, the one thing that she did have in that speech that struck me um, was a kind of a humility, I would say about, about liberal democracy. You know, the belief has been, I think since, you know, for, for, since the fall of the Berlin wall, that liberal democracy was the way, right? That that it, liberal democracy was the same thing as prosperity, which is the same thing as open markets and respect for rules based order around the world, and and you know everybody could have a great stable political system, a great economy, and everybody's going to be well off if they if they if they go this route. Well, it's, it hasn't really worked out that way, right? You know, we've got Russia and China who have gone a very different route and still are very powerful. Um, and then there are all these in between countries too that you know aren't necessarily um, sold on the fact on, on on liberal democracy as being the best way forward to towards prosperity. Well, and one country that jumps to mind as I was reading your piece was India. I mean, where do you place them in in the? Uh, you know, we don't like to put people in 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 boxes and in categories, but. Uh, India has a pretty strong relationship with Russia. Uh, you know, do we exclude yeah. India simply because we want to exclude Russia? Yeah, I mean, I think that's been a live question over over the last few months um, because because they have not, uh, you know, joined the West in in taking a stand on Russia against uh, against Ukraine as much as Canada would have hoped. Um, and so, you know, what what do we do? Like, is is the natural consequence of this to say, okay? We're not going to do business with India. I don't think so. I mean, we, we would take a hit because of that. And I mean, that's the thing. Uh, politically, really, is 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 uh, is Freeland prepared, and is the federal are the federal liberals prepared to go to the Canadian public and say, you know, we have these beliefs. We're going to trade and and do our arrange our economy based on these beliefs. But meanwhile, your costs are going to go way up, and you may not be able to get some stuff because we're cutting, we're cutting out a bunch of countries. Like, are we willing to prepare to pay that price? And have they even started to really prepare the the, the public for that? For you know, a whole raft of higher prices um, on top of the inflationary crisis that we're already dealing with. Uh, short answer: No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> political survival comes to mind, and I'm sure that's paramount in their minds too. There's another element to this too that uh, that you included in the piece, based on what she was talking about, uh, and that's the government's active role in 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 mm -hmm. attracting business, multinationals, and we've seen evidence of that in the last couple of months uh, with the prime minister, with some of the announcements they've made. I know there are some people that are simply saying, "Well, that you know, that's that's corporate welfare. You shouldn't be handing check out like this." Uh, but you got to ante up to get into the game, and they, I guess they see this as uh, this is going to be the foundation for that strength of, of self reliance as much as you can, anyway, uh, in a global economy. 
Yeah, um, so there's a lot of strategizing going into all of this, and that's where uh, François-Philippe Champagne, the innovation minister, kind of comes into it. So he has um, been going around uh, handing out money to multinational companies, um, and that that on the surface of it, you'd be like, why why would he do that? It's his taxpayers' money, and why would we give it to a, a completely profitable um, multinational company um, to come and invest here? Um, but uh, the argument is um, that uh, there, it's we have to give it a, an extra added bonus to get those multinationals to come here and expand. And it's worth it because uh, that way we're building up our own supply chains here in Canada and our own ways of producing things. So there, he's especially paying attention to um, critical minerals because uh, China is very dominant in that market right now. Canada has some. They're in the ground. It, the, the critical minerals are mostly in the ground. Um, it, they are very precious because you need them to to make uh, uh, batteries for electric vehicles. And they're, they are part of, uh, you know, a broader strategy for sustainable, you know, electric on the, on the whole um, cutting emissions front. So mm-hmm. everybody wants these critical minerals. We have some. And, and and the federal government's argument is that by enticing global investment in that area um, and building up our, our supply chain right here at home, that we can um, provide a competition and an alternative to, to China that is more sustainable and uh, also, you know, more, more in the camp of liberal democracy. And so people will deal with us. Also, you know, if you look at um, in, in, in Hamilton, the prime minister was just uh, was just there last week talking about green steel again, and and yeah. that's another example of of this uh, this approach, right? So we know China is a huge steel producer. We also produce steel, um, and now there's a whole bunch of federal funding and subsidies, provincial too, going into um, lowering emissions in Canada's steel um, industry, so that we can be more self-sufficient here at home and also cut emissions and also, you know, support uh, a liberal democracy instead of China. Um, It's a lot of things to do at once. And, you know, we're not there yet. Like, you know, there are a lot of pieces that have to fall into place before we actually get to cutting these emissions out of steel production. So that's where the federal subsidies Heather. It's, I mean, you mentioned the Hamilton announcement last week. Of course, Premier Ford has attended some of those. There's the, the collaboration, of course, with the feds in the province to do with EV production, not just the batteries, but the, the vehicles themselves. Uh, it's got to be a, a, a good news story for the premiers to be able to, to even hitch their wagon to something like this and say, here's our future. And let, uh, maybe maybe let the feds do an awful lot of the heavy lifting here, but they're going to obviously they're going to be beneficiaries of this themselves in the long term for the, the provincial economic. Uh, aspect of this yeah that's the hope um that, that is certainly the hope and it is uh you know it, it, it's a big vision um i would just say that you know there, there's a little bit of another side of a story here which is you have to you, the governments are both paying for this i mean yesterday we saw nokia a, a, a multinational invest in expanding its uh its footprint in ottawa and you know all the words are about okay we're going to be globally competitive and sustainable and we're going to take on 5g and and it's all about you know uh uh you know um a multinational that's not from China and can offer us all these things, but they got $30 million from the provincial government and $40 million from the federal government to do this. And so there's a, there's a price, right? So, so there's, and, and there's also a, a price in excluding, um, the Chinese companies, right? Like maybe, maybe we've got a whole range of options there that we have excluded and we have to hope that, that, that the other options are available, um, from, 
companies from com- countries that we deem to be acceptable in that in that system. So, you know, it takes a lot of big thinking, a lot of planning and a lot of reorient- reorienting about how we invest, how we attract investment and, and how we do trade. Uh, fascinating piece in the star. People can uh, check it out for themselves and uh, get some ideas to where the government seems to be heading this. Uh, as always, Heather, thank you so much for this. Really appreciate the time today. Okay, my pleasure. Have a good day. You too. Heather Schofield, Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star, uh, writing about uh, what seems to be the uh, federal government's vision for moving forward economically. And uh, like she said, it's a heavy price to pay, but uh, could well be worth it in the long term. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.